Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. Today, we're going to be talking about preparing grandparents when you are adopting. An important topic. It becomes even more, in topic, uh, more important if your parents and grandparents don't approve of your decision to adopt. Uh, you will really enjoy today's show. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Adoption and Infertility Education and Support Nonprofit, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We have an Adopt-Ed Center for Parents with 100-plus-some-odd courses, uh, one-hour interview courses with experts, downloadable, uh, conversational-style engaging um, we have just revamped it and have recently relaunched the revamped ber- version, which you can find on our website at creatingafamily.org. Uh, click on in the horizontal menu at the front page, on the top of the page, click on online courses, and you can or hover over it, and you can uh, click on Adopt Ed for Parents. Or if you're a social worker, we also have uh, ten new courses that are accredited for a social worker CE. But today I'm telling you about the courses for parents. So you click on that and you can go. There's a fancy schmancy sorting in the right-hand side. But the course that I want to tell you about is uh, directly relevant to the topic of today's show, and that is preparing your extended family. We also have a domestic uh, package, and we have an international Hague-aligned package. I think you'll really enjoy both of those. And uh, you can get a certificate of completion. There's a 10-question quiz at the end. You can get a certificate of completion, and you can use it for your uh, adoption education if accepted by your agency. So check it out. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring recently launched My Fertility Navigator, which offers free one-on-one support for women who are struggling to get pregnant. It's especially helpful when you're unsure of where and how to begin. Once enrolled in My Fertility Navigator, you'll receive a personalized guidance from a live, dedicated fertility navigator. And they can provide you information on uh, how to find a clinic, clinic, which clinics, uh, fertility clinics are near you, information about financial resources, treatment options, and just a bunch of other things that you would find fascinating and helpful. You can go to their website at myfertilitynav.com. C-A-F. It's important that you put the slash C-A-F because that lets them know that you found about them through us. So, myfertilitynav.com. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, wouldn't happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Children's House International. They are a nonprofit, Hague-accredited international adoption agency, and they have programs in 18 countries. They provide full services, including home studies in the states of Florida, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Texas, Utah, and Washington State. And But they place children with any uh, U.S. family approved, and in fact, this could be worldwide as well. We also, as a gold sponsor, have Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a Hague-accredited adoption agency placing waiting children from around the world, offering home study and post-adoption services to residents of North Carolina and New York. They have programs in Armenia, Bulgaria, Georgia, Ghana, Guyana, Morocco, Pakistan, Serbia, 
Ukraine, and they also do kinship adoptions through uh, from uh, from a number of countries. So check both of those uh, gold, wonderful gold sponsors out. Today we're going to be talking about preparing grandparents when you are adopting. Uh, Sometimes grandparents are thrilled but might be overstepping boundaries, might not understand um, the type of parenting you want to do. This is particularly relevant when you're adopting an older child and you're wanting to do some nesting, or you might be, might be disciplining different, or might be focusing on attachment parenting or whatever. But also sometimes grandparents are not thrilled. And uh, then what do you do? Uh, do you need to talk them into it? Do you, what do you do if you're, not, if you're concerned that they're not going to treat your adopted child as they do as they treat other children, uh, other grandchildren? How do you deal with all of this? Uh, our, ex, our guest today is Elizabeth O'Toole. She is the author of a great book titled In On It, What Adoptive Parents Would Like You to Know About Adoption. Um, she is full of great information. This is a re-airing of a show we did a number of years ago, uh, and it is a perennial favorite, and so we're bringing it to you again. Enjoy. Welcome, Elizabeth, to Creating a Family. Thank you, Don. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, one of the things that I really liked, and by the way, I did really like your book, uh, one of the things that I really liked about it was that you acknowledged that often part of the problem with our relatives and friends and their seeming lack of acceptance of our adoption is that we've spent a good deal of time getting educated on adoption, but our family and friends have not, yet we somehow expect them to absorb all of our knowledge as if by osmosis. Why Why is that one of the fundamental problems, and what can we do about it? Well, I think that the adoption process itself um, happens so separate from people who would normally be um, often very much a part of an intimate personal experience like this one. I mean, I think of things like choosing a college or buying a house or, you know, for those of us who maybe um, had a pregnancy. Um, those are things that oftentimes, um, you know, we share with other people. But the process itself, the classes, the training, even the decision-making, the deliberating it's so that is so intimate and so separate from people who might normally, you know, come along with us. Um, there's it, the process does not include other people beyond the adoptive parents. Well, and let me. Uh, this will be a great time for me to interject a question, which I just love because I thought it summed up. Because not only is it the adoption process that is something that, because of just the alienness of the whole thing, we may not be sharing, but oftentimes the 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 infertility process that mm. that does precede doesn't have to but but often precedes the decision to adopt here's the question from Kristen it's a little long but i'm going to read the whole thing cuz i really i just really this this question touched me love your show oh, love your show and i'm very glad you're covering this topic our son joined our family when he was 2 days old we do not live near our extended family and therefore it was very easy for us to hide the years of infertility struggles and our process of making the decision that adoption was the best path for us since we are a very private couple it was helpful for us at the time to not have this information public knowledge, but we suspect that we are paying for it now. Mm-hmm. We didn't share any information with our extended family until after we made the ultimate decision that we were going to adopt, which was about 10 months before our son was born. We were faced with a great deal of resistance from certain key extended family members during the adoption process. 
We addressed what we could and had hoped that the remaining resistance would go away once they met our son. Unfortunately, this has not occurred. We have one family member that continues to act as, as if our son doesn't really exist, another that is great with our son privately but doesn't want to be seen in public with him, we adopted transracially, and another that accidentally made it clear several months after our adoption that the only reason why they were supporting us, but us was because, quote, everyone who adopts gets pregnant, didn't you know? End quote. Oh, right. When a bio baby didn't follow, their interest in our son tapered off. Our son is now almost oh. two years old, and we have tried everything we can think of to get a bond formed between our son and these family members, photos, phone calls, Skype, etc., and none of it really seems to be working. We fear that it might be a lost cause at this point, but we really hate to give up because we want our son to have a positive relationship with these people. Can you or your guests provide any advice for us on things we haven't tried, or should we continue to doing what we are doing and hope they come around? Now, she asked a number of questions and, and, and raises, actually, this, this her question will actually be a bit of a synopsis of the whole show because we will be talking a little further about the transracial aspect, so we won't have to focus on that now. But using her question as a backdrop, I wanted to talk about, I think it is very common. Well, actually, I should back up. In our audience, it almost seems... <laughs> 50 50 uh, as to whether people ha- ha- share everything about their infertility journey and struggles with their, especially their parents, both sides' parents, or whether they share very little. But but I thought it was interesting what she was pointing out that they may be paying for it now. Um, mm-hmm. she, yeah. <clears throat> Boy, that, there is a lot in that question, um, including, and I like where you're starting with the infertility piece. Um, you know, I think. Um, I feel like I had a similar experience to her in some ways. Um, you know that if you're a private person, um, I think that that is a real, part, real big part of that struggle with infertility, um, because you don't want that part of your, you know, you don't feel like you should have to share that part of your life, and especially at such, you're at such a vulnerable exactly, point. and it's private, and and not only yeah. that, it, you know, there's some parts of it that are, that are embarrassing, and it's also. Mm-hmm. The sense that some people have that they're a failure, that somehow oh, yeah. their inability to produce a child reflects upon them, uh, and all these things, you know, make it hard. Particularly if the pre- people are not living near you, so that they don't see you frequently, you don't feel like you're hiding things. You just don't mm-hmm. happen to bring it up. Yeah. And so how did you? Going... So was your family surprised, or, or did you eventually start including them at some point? I did. I did some. Some and not all, you know, it depended on the person and on the relationship, um, you know. But you're on it's such a sharp learning curve yourself at that point, and you're grappling with so many decisions you never thought you would have to grapple with. Everything's so new to you. It's hard. It can be hard, I think, for many of us to take on that added task of educating other people mm-hmm. and making yourself vulnerable to them, and even getting other people's criticism and questions at mm-hmm. a time when you're still trying to get a hold of that piece yourself mm-hmm. um i do think that it's really common that um you know i talk about becoming a parent as being a journey from a you know we'd like to be parents to z we're parenting a child but with with families like hers and my own there's this midpoint m where we decide that <clears throat> we're going to stop at a place called we're going to adopt <laughs> to get to z and um to get to m that journey from a to m to stop at m there's a there is this whole process that goes on this internal deliberation and very conscious decision making piece but unless you've actually gone through that time and that experience yourself it's very hard to understand for some people how they can you know make that stop at m or how they can arrive at that point and i think again that's a 
that's a flaw in the process itself is that other people aren't included and so we set there's they are faced suddenly with our announcement we're adopting or we're presenting as an adoptive family we're actually at z but they haven't had the the time or the experience um or the education that we have and so they have a lot of questions and concerns and fears about our decision um if it's if it's something that's new to them as it was for most of us adoptive parents too and that's such a good point because I do think that it's hard for us sometimes to remember at the very beginning, back at uh, probably L, maybe when we were <laughs> right. first beginning to that inkling you know, that that how much we didn't know either, mm-hmm. and how much we learned, and and I do think that sometimes it's almost unfair uh, mm-hmm. because uh, we do hear from a lot of people who are frustrated by their extended family's uh, support or lack thereof. And I think that it's important to kind of own the part that we own of this, that mm-hmm. that for for very good reasons, perhaps, very self-protective reasons, um, we made the decision not to share a lot. And, you know, and that's hurtful. When people find that out, on some level that is hurtful because everyone, not everyone, but most parents uh, want to, and siblings want to believe that they would be there for us if we had just right. opened up. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I think that's a shared experience that we have as adoptive parents that we do need to um, educate other people and get them to where we are. But I also, whenever I talk to an adoptive parent group, my first point is always to remind them, remember you were were probably new to it once too. Mm -hmm. Remember how far you've come. Remember that you made mistakes. You've said the wrong thing. I always own up mm-hmm. to having asked a, an adoptive mother in front of her adopted child, so what do you know about the birth mother? <laughs> you know, I always own mm-hmm. that we've all made mistakes, too. Exactly. And, you know. We were all very politically incorrect <laughs> right? as well. You know, and it's not just people who come to adoption through infertility. It is right. also people who choose to adopt because, mm-hmm. quite frankly, um, that seems less understandable to many people. Mm, mm. You know, and I I will admit that we did not share a lot of information about our adoption, well, uh, with our extended family, in fact, any information, until we were relatively close. Not It was not, we were not exactly waiting. I think we was right before we got a referral. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, I think back, and our reasons were valid. Our reasons were we expected opposition. <laughs> we uh-huh. didn't want the advice. <laughs> and we uh, figured it would, you know, as opposed to Kristen, it worked out perfect for us. Um, so, you know, maybe we made the right decision or maybe, quite frankly, we just got lucky. Um, but uh, we figured that if it was a fait accompli, that, that they w- we would not, uh, at that point, we would not hear from them and say, are you sure you want to do this? Uh, right. In fact, we may have actually, I, I'm trying to remember, we may have waited until we actually had the referral. Um, and so, of course, then, and it worked out. Nobody did at point, that point did question it, and both sets of families were, you know, gaga over our children. So, it, you know, it worked out. But, you know, I, I uh, we talk with a lot of families now who are choosing adoption as a way to add to their family, not through, uh, not because they're yeah. infertile. And they face um, it too. Maybe even more in some ways, you know, as I say, you know. I think you raise um, a couple of interesting points, one of which is that um, even with a, even with friends and relatives that are fully on board, 
they can still benefit from some education and, and preparation. Um, you know, I, I have an anecdote about my mom who who was quite supportive and really did take the journey with, with my husband and I. Um, but she was out walking my daughter in a stroller one day, and um, her neighbor approached them and said to my mom, you know, how did she get so brown talking about my daughter? And my mom said to me later that day that when my husband and I decided to adopt and decided to adopt transracially, she, you know, realized she knew that he and I would no doubt get lots of questions about the children and about adoption, but she had not expected to be fielding questions and comments herself, and it hadn't occurred to me either that other people would need to know how to manage that piece of being an adoptive parent that we are all very familiar with, but it never occurred to me that other people would need to be prepared for that as well. Um, So I think it's broader than just um, people who are resistant. What are some suggestions for educating our family? Mm -hmm. And I will start with the list, and and my first suggestion would be to go out and buy this book in on it. (laughs) and uh, wrap it up in some pretty paper and give it to them as a gift with a loving inscription on there mm-hmm. about how you're excited about them sharing the journey and you thought that mm-hmm. they would enjoy some of this information. Um, so in addition to that, and that truly is would be my very first suggestion, oh, and the second suggestion would be to send them the link to the um, uh, our page on creatingafamily.org uh, for family and friends under adoption resources, and we have lots of resources there. Oh, well, and I'll add my third one, which would be uh, in my book, The Complete Book of International Adoption, we have uh, the uh, last chapter uh, is on uh, once you're your home, and it covers a lot of topics, uh, such as questions and things like that. So that would also be, now that I've monopolized your response. Uh, <laughs> okay, I in, love your response. In, a, in addition to those three things, what would you suggest as far as educating our family? Uh, well, I, I love that idea of third-party resources. I just really think um, it can be so helpful to have someone else or some other resource um, introducing topics or explaining aspects of adoption for us and then letting those things generate questions and conversations between you know ourselves and our loved ones. But I do think it is such a vulnerable time for us, um, for families, and these are sensitive topics. Um, and I also think that for other people to um, learn about adoption on their own is a really nice way, even if they're not on board with the adoption itself yet, it's a really nice way for them to show their support of their loved one, regardless of where they're at with adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, well, especially point, if they do it in such a way that it's not, you are so ignorant, you need this help. Right. But if, if right. there's a way to share it in such that we're we're excited for you to be on this journey, and here's some great resources that are addressed that. to the grandparents. I love that, and I really think, you know, I I often say we can't say um, people should know better. We really need to say how would they know? I just really think even that small change in approach uh-huh. can be helpful. Um, mm-hmm. I think that part of um, educating other people again in this. This falls on maybe the adoptive parents again, but I think it's helpful if we try to consider um, where people are coming from sometimes. And I'm thinking of Kristen and her situation, and I'm wondering if there are people in her lives that um, also experienced loss around the adoption, and maybe that word never occurred to them or never occurred to Kristen. It didn't occur to me until years after adoption when I was actually putting pen to paper and interviewing people for my book. But I came to understand that 
you know, I had lost an expected child. I had lost an experience I had imagined when I had imagined a very traditional route to parenthood. But what I came to understand was that people around me had also experienced loss. Um, mm-hmm. They had also experienced a particular type of child or a particular type of achieving grandparenthood, for example. And um, I remember interviewing a grandmother who had long expected to be in the delivery room Mm -hmm. with her daughter at the very moment of birth of her first grandchild. Mm -hmm. And they came to understand she needed to grieve a loss of this this expected child and expected experience before she could commit to adoption. And And what are some of the other losses? The the loss of witnessing the birth and and being there for the first moments of life, that's certainly a loss. What are some of the other losses that, um, that parents might experience? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, there was a, a grandfather. This is a common one um, in some fa- for some families that um, he was mourning the loss of his genealogical family line. Mm-hmm. Um, it yeah. was very important to him, and but it was going to end with his son. Mm-hmm. And he um, had to he had to acknowledge that what he was feeling and experiencing was a loss. And I don't think we always give other people that language. I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but when he could when he could acknowledge that and that it was legitimate <laughs> yeah it's um, not that not in a belittling sort of way acknowledging right. it it is sad that in fact our gene pool is ending here that's right. a sad thing and we can all acknowledge that mm-hmm. and loss is a shared human experience and i think if we give each other that language we really get key insights into what we're each experiencing in this Great privilege to participate in, but it's complicated. <laughs> it, it, um, another loss is that uh, that looking for similarities. Oh, mm, look, that's Grandma's nose all over yes, again. And when yes. you look at those feet, my God, she's going to have yes. a bunion just like Papa. <laughs> you know that type yes. of thing. Uh, family traits. The family traits. That yes. is something that that is that you know it's fun it's a fun thing to do it is. families enjoy that and, and it's a way we connect as family uh-huh. yeah um mm-hmm. but i do always remind i i um suggest to people that family traits won't end your your concept of family traits will instead expand mm-hmm. and um you know i talk about how you know in my family for example um my kids don't have the typical o'toole blue eyes or freckles but boy, everyone loves reading, and they we have a shared sense of humor, and those are very typical O'Toole traits. And um, now I within think within our family, we we mention we talk about uh, one of our children's stubbornness. Yes, <laughs> inherited right. directly from her grandmother. <laughs> right, and, and my husband so points out mean. stopping with me in between, but. <laughs> all the time 
instead mm-hmm. of just, instead of kind of a more thoughtful, deliberate. And we have to let people say we have to let us make ourselves open to saying ouch sometimes, but we have to give people room to to talk. I guess would be another suggestion I would have um, for Kristen. I, I'd really love to know what sorts of conversations she's had, you know, with her loved ones and how much she understands of she of their perspective, you know, that if it's yeah. I'm afraid sometimes in some of our families we're always we're saying things but we don't get enough time to discuss. I wonder sense? in Kristen's case if there would be an advantage to writing a letter, individual mm-hmm. letter to um, the key people, I mean, you, you, uh, I would focus on the people that are the most important. That might be her parents, her, her husband's parents. Uh, and if it's her husband's parents, the letter should be from him. Uh, and I right. always think it's a good, uh, yeah. Uh, and I always think it's a good idea to own your part up front. And her part yeah. of this is to say that I realize now that by excluding you, you weren't able. By not sharing our pain, you didn't recognize it. And Mm -hmm. if I had it to do over again, I would probably do it differently. But I was hurting so bad and I was so scared and felt so vulnerable and raw that I wasn't able to do that. And I'm afraid that our son is, is, is being hurt because of my mistake. And I am so sorry for my part in that. And, and start there and then say how important these people are both to you and how important they are to your son and how much you want to have a relationship with them and how much you want for them to have a relationship with your child. And it, then if necessary, and only if necessary, you can if, if the people have been hurtful in some way to your son, you can say that, but, but my first and, and ultimate goal will be to protect my son. And mm-hmm. if you can't behave appropriately uh, with my son then and and not show favoritism to other children or whatever you know then then he will not be a, then we will not be a, a a part of your life or you will not be but i wouldn't put that in in fact in the first letter i probably wouldn't put that in at all unless there have been specific incidents because sometimes a letter is an easier way even though it seems less personal, in some ways receiving it in the mail makes it personal and it also allows the other person to digest what you're saying mhm and to end the letter with some form of, can we meet for coffee? Or yeah, uh, you know, I'm gonna, you know, we're coming at Thanksgiving. Could we schedule some time, just you and I, to talk? You know, so so that you end it with a, you know, an in-person thing. Um, any suggestions or any thoughts on that? I think that's very nice, and I really like the idea of, you know, I like how you articulated that. Um, that you, you know, we make, we do the best we can <laughs> as we're going yeah. through this decision-making process, and mm-hmm. she made the best decision she could at the time. And I don't think she's necessarily, um, um, oh, what do I want to say? You know, she's not pointing fingers. I like that mm-hmm. it didn't sound the way you articulated it. Is not is not blaming at all. It's accepting mm-hmm. some responsibility. Not that she would necessarily mm-hmm. be able to do it differently because mm-hmm. she had to go through the process in her own way, but acknowledging that there are there is an outcome from keeping it separate mm-hmm. for so long. I really mm-hmm. like that. I think it puts the other person at ease if everyone should sort of take responsibility for where we've arrived. Um, mm-hmm. And I like that she initiates, I like that she she is the one opening the door to conversation there, that that letter would do for her. Well, Kristen, I sure hope it works, because ultimately the responsibility is for your son. 
Here's a question from Teresa. She says, we'll be sharing our adoption plans for the first time over Thanksgiving with my family. <gasps> oh! And, <exciting. laughs> and Christmas exciting. with his family. So far, when I told my parents and a few close friends, I was shocked that their reaction was along the lines of, are you sure you're ready to give up? Have you tried IVF, et cetera? Mm -hmm. I need to come back. I need to have a comeback on what to say when I hear this over the holidays. I just want them to be supportive. Any thoughts on what Teresa experienced (laughs) and and is anticipating experiencing again? Yes, well, not an uncommon um, question. That her the question she's heard is not uncommon at all. Um, I think it's a genuine question. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think people really do wonder. Um, they don't know. I think people. I was surprised by the to discover this, but I I didn't realize that people don't because they don't under because they don't have access to information about the process and they haven't gone through the process themselves. I don't think they always understand just how deliberate and lengthy and mm-hmm. conscious the process is. So they will ask a question like that. I, someone asked me if um, if we had, um, are you sure you've tried everything? <laughs> and, and, well that, and that's an assumption. Not all of us want to try everything. Exactly. It's um, something I, to remind people. I heard a, a conversation. Uh, this was, I think, shared on the Creating a Family Facebook uh, support group. Um, a woman talked about how her mother-in-law told her that what she needed to do was uh, do missionary position and then make sure she put her feet up in the air afterwards. <laughs> she said the thought of her mother-in-law giving her sexual position advice was just not enough to blow her mind. Uh, I laughed and laughed and laughed over that. Oh, yes. Uh, um, but people you know, have and, ideas. And, and the mother-in-law said, "I conceived her own." She said, "I conceived the son or the woman's husband that way." Oh and no! I'm, yeah, it's like, you want to scream? TMI. I'm a little uncomfortable. It doesn't involve my family. You don't understand it. We still pretend that you found him underneath the cabbage patch. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, I think your point is well taken. That partly we view this the question as. Are you sure you're ready to give up as an insult uh, to the next step that we're embarking on? And, but it might be that, in fact, what it is is simply a not understanding that, heck, yeah, we've tried, you know, assuming that infertility is your reason or uh, that, it, that you don't view it as giving up. It may be politically incorrect, but it is probably a question based on ignorance, mm-hmm. not ill intent. And it's, I, I think that's exactly right, and I think that people are looking for reassurance that someone they care about, you know, is going to, is making is making is taking steps that are going to make them or bring them what they want. I think people, it, I think most of the questions and comments we get, especially from our loved ones, really come out of protectiveness and love. Mm-hmm. If we can see them, you know, from that perspective. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's not easy to see it that way. Oh, yeah. But if you come with the assumption that most of them are are are, are based on love. And you know, as as ill uh, as ill stated as it might be, if you start with that assumption, then your your then you're not then your first reaction isn't defensive. So, how much in Teresa's right. case, how much um, information would you give? I mean, uh, um, about the process. I mean, would you just say yes, simply yes, and we're moving on, or would you give more information? Um. You know, I, now, where I am now and having the benefit of being able to look back, you know, 10 years ago to when we were in Teresa's position, I would um, be, I would, I would try to reassure, 
You know, I don't know. I don't know if everyone's entitled to the information about the specific steps we've taken, and I think boundaries vary mm-hmm. with different people. Exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she's certainly entitled to her boundaries and about what information she wants to share with whom. But I think if she if she wants to have just a, if she doesn't want to get into a long explanation, if she just wants to have a quick answer at the ready. She might just say something like, "I can assure you." We're, you know, we're comfortable with where we are. I can assure you we've taken the steps we needed to to get to where we are. Something well, another like thought would be if she's comfortable with this, and again, and uh, and you're so tr- right that everybody's sense of privacy depends not on just who they are but also to whom they're speaking. But one thought would be to say we've been in treatment for uh, two and a half years and we have seen uh, more specialists than you can imagine, and we feel comfortable that we're making uh, the best uh, – and. The best step that, uh, that we're making the best decision we can to bring ourselves uh, happiness mm-hmm. and, and ultimately what we really want is to be parents or something along those yeah. lines. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we're committed to our new path. Yeah, and that and now that we were committed, we're getting excited. Uh, we are excited. Yes. We are, you know, sharing that, but to let them know, and you don't have to say that we've tried everything because a lot of people choose not to try everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, if you are not infertile, then um, that's again. I come back to that. Sometimes that's a harder discussion to have, mm. and yeah. you can. Sometimes it's probably easier rather than getting into a philosophical discussion, uh, just to say that you know we viewed all of our options and really feel this is the most, this is the best one for us, and kind of mm-hmm. cut it off there. Or mm-hmm. depending on who you're talking to, if you want a philosophical discussion, you know, jump in. Right. <laughs> May make an interesting Thanksgiving, but whatever. Right. <laughs> right. You are listening well, I congratulate, to, Teresa. That's very exciting. She has a lot to exciting. look forward to. You're listening to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility. Today we're talking about preparing your extended family for your, for your adoption and what to do if they aren't supportive. Our guest is Elizabeth O'Toole. She is the author of In On It, What Adoptive Parents Would Like You to Know About Adoption, A Guide for Relative and Friends. Well, we talked. Uh, um, I said we would come to talking about transracial adoption, and the truth is, transracial adop- adoption can often throw a kink into your extended family's reaction to your adoption news. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to assume it's always racism that's at the heart of a negative uh, reaction. But have you found this to be true? Oh, I think that's a, such a great question. Um, I think a lot of actually, it has to do with um, privacy issues as well. And um, wanting actually for that fact of an adoption just not to be as visible, and I think that's a reason some parents make decisions along the lines that they do. Um, I, I think that some people do actually um, have a, an immediate impulse to say, "Oh, maybe they, they have there there might be some reasons behind it that's rate that it has to do with racism." But I I've come to understand that really that privacy issue has is a factor in sometimes in that the way we choose to adopt including the decisions we make around adopting transracially do you mean like your mother's issue when she was uh strolling with your daughter and and had to address had somebody come up and ask her questions is that what you mean by a privacy issue yes that some people would prefer not to have the 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 adopt the fact of the adoption be so visible yeah i think and I also think that there is a um, a common belief, and, and I, I don't know if it's generational or not. I want to say that it probably is not as common in uh, the younger generation as in the older generation, but I don't really know if that's true. But I do think that there's a belief that transracial adoptions don't work, that it's not mm-hmm. good for the kid, that it's not good for the family. 
Um, so I think there's that, and I think that it it probably helps to acknowledge that maybe there's a little bit of that going on as well, and a little bit yes. of educating that needs to be done around that. Absolutely, including in how um, we're parenting our kids that we adapt transracially. I, um, in the past, I think best practices really were that parents were advised to try to minimize or ignore a child's racial differences. And so you'd hear people saying things like, um, you know, we don't see color, we just think of him as one of us, and believed, you know, that that was the best way to parent a child of another race or to integrate a person of another race into a family or community. And, um, you know, we're lucky enough now to have um, generations of adoptees and, and adoptive parents who've come before us and are sharing what they've learned, and we know now that we we need to um, acknowledge our kids' identities as um, people of color, um, that they are going to have race-based experiences that we, their parents, may not have had, and that we need to um, make decisions and choices that will help them navigate those things throughout their lives. Um, and I think other um, the people around us don't always understand why we make might make certain choices around schools our kids attend or the activities they participate in or even the neighborhoods we live in. But I think when they understand, um, and again, this is where third-party resources can be so great, a memoir from an adult adoptee who was adopted transracially, for example, can really shed a lot of light on why we need to parent kids um, uh, in a way that identifies um, and in their their race specific, you know, and identify, acknowledges that they are of a different race than their parents, perhaps, and will have different experiences and responsibilities as a result of that. Yeah, so uh, again, <laughs> go to your third-party resources. Um, we have a number of, um, uh, um, Elizabeth's book, In On It, addresses this, and, and so since you're going to be giving this as a gift, they will be, you could underline or star that cha- those chapters or those sections. Um, and uh, we also have lots and lots of resources, as well as radio shows on transracial adoption, mm-hmm. and, and talking about parenting. So one of the things you could do is download a few shows and listen to them um, with your parent um, or mm-hmm. your uh, brother, whomever it, it is that you're, you're you're talking about. And and one of the things I think it helps to acknowledge is that when you adopt transracially, you do, you affect not only your immediate family, but the family tree. Your your parents' great grandchildren will be, assuming that you've adopted outside of your race, will be children of color if they are if your family is Caucasian. So it 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 fundamentally shifts things. Yeah. And and so it's you know although you are doing it because it's best for you, it does help to acknowledge that your decision is impacting them as well. Um, and That's giving a good point. Them, and giving them time to to adjust. Here's a question from Rachel. She said, I wondered if anybody else has had someone, in my case my brother, launch into a story about some adopted kid trying to kill his parents or my aunt telling me about an adopted teen who was on drugs and ran away from home. How do you respond to these type of comments? Yes. You, yes. We, I call them adoption horror stories. <laughs> and when I read this, I just a... <laughs> immediately went, oh, yeah, been there, heard that. Right, right. <laughs> Yes, every adoptive parent and will know 
it, her question will resonate for every adoptive parent because it yeah, seems well. to be a human impulse <laughs> that when someone shares their adoption connection, they they tell that kind of story. They they want to tell, they want to make a connection, but that seems to be a <laughs> sensational story. Seems to be the one they pull up. And why? Um, I have never understood. Why would it's like somebody getting ready to fly, you know, take a plane trip, and you launch into? Well, did you hear about the plane that crashed right on takeoff? I mean, who would do that? And yet well, they do. They sure do. And I, you're, I think your question is a very good one, Don. Um, I, I do think they're ma- trying to make a connection, and um, you know, the stories that appear in the news um, are often sensational. Um, it does seem like often a person's adoptive status. I mean, we didn't I think a lot of people didn't know Steve Jobs was um adopted until, you know, his biography came out after his death. Um and but if a person, you know, if so the brother's story of the person killing his own parents, their adoptive status was probably mentioned in news articles. I mean, you know, when for a lot of us might think why is that even relevant to the news article, but it 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 does seem to come up in stories that are tragic or dramatic or sensational. And so that gives people a skewed concept of adoption. Amen. <laughs> it, <laughs> it does. Uh, yeah. So how would you suggest that Rachel respond to the, um, did you hear that the kid killed his parents and he was adopted? <laughs> well, I think that, um I think that uh, the way we share other people's adoption stories um, can go a long way to showing respect for adoption. And I think she should tell him, you know, when you um, tell those stories, when you share those stories and disseminate those stories, you're, se- you're, you're showing disrespect for the practice of adoption and for your niece or nephew. Because um, I think that's something I talk about with adoptive parents now, too, is that I think we need to be careful with the stories we share um, and the way we share them. Because to share a someone's sensational adoption story casually or sort of as gossip, um, I think disrespects, you know, the great privilege that adoption is. And, um, you know, I think that's a great thing for her to be telling gently. You know, there's a gentle way to do it because he sure hasn't thought of it himself, but I think that's something to point out to him. (laughs) Yeah, he sure hasn't thought of it himself. Yeah, it is probably because part of like it or not as as, – you have said a number of times in the show, part of our role as an adoptive parent is to educate. Uh, and, you know, if you truly abhor that position, then, you know, if you haven't adopted yet, then think twice, because the truth is that is part. Uh, and it's not every day, and there are times mm-hmm. when you can choose not to, to educate. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, one of the hard parts is that with our family, um, we don't always have, we have to choose to educate more than not to educate. Whereas the stranger you meet in the uh, you know at Starbucks, you can mm-hmm. ignore and just right. blow off unless it's said in front of your child and you feel like you have to. Here's a um, speaking of the need to educate. That's a good. Um, this one was asked not to use her name. She said, "My dad often makes comments that make me cringe." And these were quotes. She's so wonderful. I can't believe her real mother didn't want her. Or mm-hmm. quote. Even though he's half black, he is really smart. Smartest kid in the class. Mm-hmm. He adores my kids and is the mm-hmm. best grandfather to them ever. I've tried to gently correct him, but he just doesn't seem to get it or can't stop himself. And then after I say something, he becomes very self-conscious. Um, well. <laughs> it you know it that's a hard one. Um, 
I think I know. You said, well, maybe he should. Is that what you were implying? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe that, a little higher consciousness is, might be called for. <laughs> but, you know, there are people who that is hard for. I mean, you know, and, 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 and without even making a value judgment, he obviously adores the children. Exactly. He is saying, I love them so much. Um, it's better than I. It's so much more than I expected. Um, uh huh. I, I, I expected so little because he's black. You know, that's, <laughs> they, that's uh, unfortunately the uh, the underlying concept here, which is a problem. Well, it's like he's growing out loud. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's, you oh, what see. a great way to say it. Yeah, <laughs> that he's he's evolved. I mean, she can she can see that. I bet that he's evolved and he's just expressing it. It's just in a clunky way. Um, I actually have a very similar anecdote in the book to a, um, a friend of mine. Actually, had a grand had a father, totally besotted with his granddaughter, who would say, um, "I just can't understand why anyone would ever give you up." And my friend had to talk to him about the fact that w- when he talked like that, he was disparaging um, the birth mother. And it was by saying, you know, by judging her and her decision and, you know, making her someone less or inferior. Um, and so he, she had to explain to him how important the birth mother is in their lives, um, how important it was that the, grand, that the daughter, granddaughter, grow up hearing her spoken of with respect. Um, and that he had just never thought about it in that way, that by expressing his love and adoration in that way, he was minimizing or diminishing the birth mother. Um, well, in this case, what might work would be to take a time when you have you're just with him and acknowledge how wonderful of a grandfather he is and mm. how lucky you think your kids are to have somebody like him because. All kids need people who are, as you say, besotted with them and who do think they're the smartest kid in the class, even though they probably aren't, and do think that they are so wonderful. But then you need to go through, and then the next step is, but when you say that her real mother didn't want her, it hurts on two levels. One, it makes me less than the real mom. Two, it Mm -hmm. makes her first mom, it makes the assumption that her first mom didn't want her and Mm -hmm. that, in fact, her first mom wanted what was best for her. Mm-hmm. And then as to the racial part, you know, I right. think that one even more so. We just, you know, what what is the underlying message that this child whom you adore is getting? And that is that part of his racial heritage is expected in your mind to not be smart. And right. that we don't want that. And, and you don't want that. Right. And so as much as you are about the gr- world's greatest granddad, and you are the world's greatest granddad, it would mean a lot to me, and I know you're trying, but if you could just remember that any time you start to make a racial statement or a statement about her value in, in, you know, to her birth mom, you know, so, saying it's something like yeah. that. And yeah. I loved how you said he's evolving out loud, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and the truth is, you know, but but – you know, I, this is because he seems to be receptive because yes. he was self-conscious. You know, then it seems like maybe, you know, to keep trying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sounds like she can already talk to him. So I, I love yeah. that you you keep going back to affirming sort of where they are. Clearly, he loves his grandchildren. You know, clearly he's in many ways he's a wonderful grandfather, and I'm sure he does not mean to be offending or you know his grandchildren or his daughter in any way. But we don't always hear how we sound. 
Yeah, we don't. And, you know, and, and oftentimes in life, it's a blessing to not hear how we sound. But in this case, <laughs> right. the fact that it's hurting the father, the children. Yeah. And, yeah, um, and, and, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say, yeah, because they're going to start to understand this in a different way. And he doesn't want the mm-hmm. grandchildren. He doesn't want to risk anything in his relationship with the grandchildren, it sounds like. Um, have you had people uh, question the type of adoption? Um, and I say, you know, people who uh, adopt from foster care uh, have yeah. people question that. Why, why, or, and quite frankly, people who don't adopt from foster care mm-hmm. have that questioned as well. Why would you adopt, uh, you know, uh, why would you, especially, and then there's, of course, the international domestic divide. Yeah. You know, why mm-hmm. would you adopt domestically? Um, why did you adopt uh, from another state? Why, you know, whatever the, it it seems like there's no way to win really because no matter how we adopt, <laughs> somebody is going to question and say why didn't you blank? It's true. It's true. Yes, um, certainly in my own life and in my, um, you know, interviews and research for the book, it was very common that people um, get these questions about their decisions. Um, and really, I, again, um, I really do think it, if these like it asked, why would you adopt internationally when there are so many children here? here, meaning the United States, who need families. And what, if you ask me, um, that is a, is a question that um, is just, sh- just shows an inexperience and an unfamiliarity with adoption and with the process. Um, and I have a lot of answers um, to that. Um, I think that, um, especially on the international um, question, I think there, someone, I, I wish I could attribute it to someone specifically, but I'll never forget someone saying, there should be no borders where children are concerned. <laughs> so I will hand that over to the parents who are adopting internationally who ever feel like they need to explain their decision. But um, I don't think people understand that in the process there are, there are so many um, questions we have to answer and criteria we need to meet. Um, and so our choices and options themselves can be limited by whether we're adopting as a single person or by our age or our income level um, or um, our health history. Um, We may have philosophical reasons or attachments that drive us to adopt in a certain way. Um, And I think that people, again, they just don't understand the deliberation and consciousness of the adoption process and that's where those questions come from, because they see things on the news, you know, um, for fo- of, you know, kids in foster care, or they see, you know, someone in orphanages around the world, and they wonder why we're not meeting that immediate need. But it's until you've gone through the process, you wouldn't know whether or not you would even meet the criteria, or even have, you know, the personal ability to adopt in certain ways. Some people don't want to adopt an infant; they prefer to adopt an older child, and vice versa, of course. Um, so again, I think that's just that's a question that comes from unfamiliarity, and it's you know it's another place to bring people up to speed on what goes into the decision of the, even the type of adoption we all this, we each decide to pursue. I, I always have to in in questions of any sort like this. Um, it's hard for me. There's a part of it, why don't you do X? And there's a part of me that wants to say, and you've spent time doing all the research, and you you know yeah. so much about this that you would <laughs> want to help advise us to make the most important decision of our life. Are you kidding? You know, I yeah. and, and I have to remind myself that the other thing that I want to say is that do you really want the response? 
responsibility of telling us what to do. I mean, think, think. What if it goes wrong? I mean, we who have spent nothing, thought nothing of, thought nothing but of this for you know whatever period of time have researched extensively, and you come in with yeah. know nothing. But that doesn't help, even though that's your initial reaction. <laughs> uh-huh. It is, you know. So, so what I do, of course, is go home and tell my husband all those things. <laughs> And then right. am more gracious when I am around other people and things. <laughs> yes. So how yes, do we do you... get prickly? <laughs> well, and that, that's the hard part is that I think it's particularly important to realize that with the holidays coming up, uh, or, or any time, let's say you're planning a trip home, that you know you may need breaks periodically uh, to mm. help you. Just have because sometimes, especially if it feels like it's continual, which truthfully it probably isn't, but but given our state at times, it might feel like it is continual. Yeah. That it might be good to schedule a few breaks and mm-hmm. a little venting session with your spouse, yeah. and your spouse has a little <laughs> venting session, you know, permission to vent and make yeah. fun of it. That's we have dealt with it when we don't experience it much anymore, but we dealt with it through humor by you know telling each other that type of thing I think yeah I, oh, I never did think of that thank you so much for bringing it up you know gosh <laughs> right. to think we researched this for two years and missed the most obvious thing so right. we would we would vent with each other but not yeah <laughs> right right not with the other uh the, uh, the offending person so right, because be- you're setting a tone too it and is. i think that's yeah. a wonderful opportunity we have we parents is we get to set the tone we are going to set the tone that adoption is a privilege, that we're proud of it, we're excited about it. You know, we get to be a part of this amazing human experience, and we're committed to it and excited. So I think that's something, you know, and people people see that, and they we set the tone, and they will model it, some of them, you know. So that's it's an opportunity we have. <laughs> most will. The truth is most people, when they're suggesting things, are really not saying you know they're not thinking through the whole thing yeah. as you pointed out earlier it is probably coming from love it is probably a oh gosh this is a huge decision have you really thought about it have you weighed all your options and and perhaps that's the response is that we've we've looked at all and we've weighed all of our options and it's yeah. pretty complex you'd be surprised how complex it is but right. for us this is best right um and just a simple statement like that could um, try it, it might go a long way towards um, or it might not too, but you know at least yeah. you've said it right um, you raised something earlier, and that is that uh as adoptive parents, sometimes we parent our children in a different manner and and you were talking to about uh, and when you raised the issue earlier, it was discussing about uh, racial awareness and things such as that that we want our children to. If our children are not of our race, we want to make sure that they have role models. We want to perhaps send them to live in a different neighborhood, attend a different church, go to send our children to different schools, things such as that. Um, but I think also one of the things that comes up is that uh, when we are, particularly if our children are not newborns, when we bring them home, um, we are going to be very conscious oftentimes in our uh uh, way uh, creating bonding and attach, attachment with our children. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally worry that sometimes we've taken this overboard and that our desire to uh, facilitate attachment with our children often can set up boundaries and exclude grandparents. And mm-hmm. I have been vocal to try to, uh, I think that we go overboard. 
But nonetheless, I do think, um, and and I certainly have heard from uh, people that uh, those families that are co-sleeping in order to uh, facilitate bonding um, will sometimes catch flack. Although, to be honest, I think every family that co-sleeps catches flack from that. Um, <laughs> yeah, so one way or the other. But um, have you experienced that? And, and have you the people you interviewed experienced that where parents don't understand what we are doing that we think is is helping to facilitate attachment in the first year's home? Yeah, well, I think that that can be a mystery. I think that can be a mysterious process to people um, that they don't, un- you know, if you don't understand much about um, child development or, um, you know, where kids can be coming from who who are adopted as older children who may have never lived in a family environment before or who may have experienced, um, you know, deprivation or insufficient care in their early years, um, you know, some of the steps that their parents need to make to, to build attachment, to assure the child of permanence and security um, will seem, you know, unusual or even unreasonable. So, again, this is a place where um, instead of feeling judged, which I think is really easy to feel um, when we're being challenged on this thing that we're that is so critical and so immediate, um, it can help if we can explain things like, why do I want to be the only person who feeds and diapers the child? Or um, why am I not going to let the child cry it out? You know, why am I going to meet their needs uh, directly? But I can appreciate what you're saying, Don, because um, I do think there it is especially hard for grandparents or other people want to love and get to know the child mm-hmm. too. And I have, I, I believe I have seen some things that we are moving toward, you know, not total exclusion of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and to, to, you know, and keeping it just to the parents, I, I, and I do think that's a nice, um, you know, the pendulum swings back and forth, and I'm yeah. gonna, I think I'm agreeing with you that, that to see the pendulum swing to include a few more important immediate people, I think is helpful. I do too, um, and I, I I like the analogy because I agree with you. Um, throughout um, my years uh, in adoption, I have seen the pendulum swing on any number of things. Yeah. And I think you. I'm glad to hear that you're hearing it as well. I, uh, I we still get a lot of questions uh, on it, um, but our answers are, are usually consistent. And most of the experts that we have on their answers are or consistent as well. So um, a lot of times, open adoption is an issue that is quite frankly terrifying to yeah. and, and misunderstood. Uh, yes. by extended family members. Do you have any suggestion on how to start the education, how to start the, the conversation about mm-hmm. open adoption? Boy, again, this is a place where I think to hear people who've lived it is so important. And I you know, I acknowledge this in, in my book. I was totally put off by the idea of open adoption. And I had never heard of it. It scared me. It made me feel threatened. I couldn't understand how my child could have more than one mother in their life, and I came to really appreciate it and um and 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 want it to be a part of my life um, What I did actually was I brought my parents to as we were in the process, I brought my parents to hear a panel of people on open adoption because I needed them to understand what we were um considering. And it was eye-opening. And, I, you know, I, I say they didn't leave immediately convinced, but they weren't just trying to have me explain it to them. They were having people who were living it, benefiting from it, um, 
having them explain it with authority. And so um, there are so many benefits to contact and communication to one extent or another. You know, it doesn't have to mean the birth mother's at the birthday party. You know, I think people are scared because they think it means one thing or another, and they don't understand the continuum of it. Again, it's just another area of adoption that people really need preparation and information about. Um, but I do think it can be very scary because it's new. You know, it's fairly new. And so if someone's concept of adoption is based on, you know, the girls who went away and came back and the mm-hmm. child is being parented somewhere else and the adoption records are sealed forever, um, then, then then contact with a birth parent is going to can be very scary, I think. But, boy, when you talk to people who are in it and who it's worked well for and you hear the benefits to, you know, adult adoptees who have the ability to get questions answered or, or um, have relationships they may want, you, you really come to appreciate it as, a, as an important um, new evolution in adoption. And one of the things that uh, you may want to do, depending on, on who you are educating, uh, and what their bent is, but if they, uh, if you, there is there is research available mm. on open adoption and the benefits of open adoption, yeah. and uh, we link to that and summarize actually and, and link to them on our adoption research page, and you could do that as well. Sometimes sometimes research uh, speaks yes. louder than anything we say because, yeah. and the funny thing, of course, is that you know. <laughs> It's the actual experiences that should matter more, but I think that uh, for a lot of people, research speaks louder than that. So That's really true. Some people like yeah. the numbers. <laughs> yeah, exactly, depending on who you're speaking with. Yeah. Well, believe it or not, we have come to the end of our hour, and I still oh. have questions to ask. <laughs> I told you, it just, it, it, it just speeds by. It really does. Yes. Thank you so much, Elizabeth O'Toole, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. Now, everybody's going to want to run out, I know that, right now and buy in on it, what adoptive parents would like you to know about adoption, a guide for relatives and friends. And, in fact, you can, you don't, but you don't need to run. You can buy it online. Of course, any of the online booksellers would have it. You can also get it uh, at Elizabeth's website, which is inonadoption.com. And on that site, you can read an excerpt of the book as well. So I would uh, recommend that you do that, and you can buy it from her there. Or uh, do you get more of a – does it help you more if they buy it from your site, or do you care? I don't care. Okay. She doesn't care. So <laughs> If you know. people want it, I want them to have it. <laughs> there you go. All right, there you go. So, So it really doesn't matter. Uh, so the next time you have a free, sh- you know, around our family, it's, it's, if we can get up to the free shipping point on Amazon, all of a sudden everybody starts jumping in. Wait a minute, I want this, I want this. So add this to your wish list. So as soon as somebody else gets up to the free shipping point, then, um, then then they'll just jump jump it right in. This show will be archived on the 2011 Big List at the radio page of creatingafamily.org. It will also be archived and linked to on our page for family and friends uh, under adoption resources. You can also download it from iTunes, and the easiest way to find it on iTunes is from our radio page. We have an iTunes button that will take you directly to our page on iTunes, or, of course, you can just go to iTunes and search for it. Next week's show, November 9th, will be on Adopting from Russia Under the New Bilateral Agreement. And remember, I want to tell you this, it is Orphan Sunday this Sunday, and in honor of that, let's remember that the U.N. estimates that there are 144 million orphans in the world, including about 107,000 currently available for adoption in the U.S. foster care system. 
These kids, as well as the millions of older children throughout the world, deserve a home. To get more information about the U.S. kids waiting for a family, you can go to the Adoption Resource page of our website, where we include links to various photo listings of some of these kiddos. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.